Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's Bible reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 10 through 17. This is the word of God. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and not one of them, and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what we need more than anything is to be rescued. We're so thankful that as we come to this word this morning, that you have sent a rescue. You sent a rescuer, and his name is Jesus. And so in this spirit of thanksgiving and worship of you, Lord, now we turn our hearts and our minds to the ministry of your word. Pray that you would cultivate the soil in our hearts, to receive this with faith, with thanksgiving, with encouragement, and may you be glorified through this. Amen. Please be seated. There's a song that goes like this. Many of you have heard it. It says, he is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane, I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. The song we just sang says, when I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. Now let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Like in the center of who you are, do you believe that? He is jealous for you. That's actually from the Bible, not just the song. Exodus 20 Verses 3 through 5, God gave these commandments and a reason for them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He is jealous for you. The words that God breathed out and inspired Matthew to write down in our text show us our Savior's thoughts about you. He loves you so much that he'll leave the 99 to pursue you and bring you back into his fold if you wander. And he loves you so much that he's given us a restorative process for when we mess things up. There's a feeling in our two passages today in Matthew that our Heavenly Father really loves us and he wants what's best for us. He'll leave the flock to pursue the one that's straying. And when one wanders from the flock, he pursues them. He's not a disinterested hired hand that's just there for the money. And he's given the rest of the flock instructions for how to love well the wandering sheep and to help that wandering one come back into the fold. The shepherd pursues his sheep. He's with his sheep in difficulty, and he won't abandon them. Let's get into our text. In verse 10, it says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, the text from last week brought up who the little ones are. Jesus is pointing out that all disciples are little ones, in that a disciple must have faith like a child. A disciple needs to see themselves as poor in spirit, if you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, dependent upon their Heavenly Father. Now, this is essential to be a follower of Jesus, to be his disciple. Now, the first 12 disciples were really struggling with this idea. If you remember the beginning of chapter 18, where they were arguing over who was going to be the most powerful. And I think every disciple after the first 12 has struggled with this too. So when Jesus says, little ones, we can insert ourselves there. We need to embrace living as poor in spirit embracing this place of dependence upon God. Embracing life as a little one, it strikes down pride in ourselves, doesn't it? Forces us into a humble posture where we realize who we are and our true standing before God. It's foundational to embracing our need for a Savior. Verse 10 continues. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And the Father cares so much for the little ones that he has angels to attend to their needs. Now think of the mouths of the lions in the den with Daniel being closed by angels. Now think of the angel that rescued Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12. Angels attend to the needs of God's flock. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we each have a guardian angel. We don't want to push this text, or quite frankly, any other text in the Bible to that end because they don't go there. But think about this. 
The father is working on behalf of his little ones in other metaphysical places in the universe. Like, that's, that's, that's incredible. Like, it's not just what we see. Like, more exists, and he's working for us in those spaces. Now, he thinks highly of his little ones, and he cares deeply for them. Let's move to verse 12. We see Jesus illustrate his love for the little ones in the main part of this passage. It says this. It says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, I fear that this illustration might get a little lost on some of us. I know most of you well enough to know that you've lived your whole life in the city. We don't do much shepherding here or work with livestock of any kind except maybe on the grill on the weekend. <laughs> so I want to take some time and I want to unpack this. Now, comparing little ones, his little ones, to sheep, it, it's not really glamorous. It's not really a, a compliment to the disciples, then or now. You see, sheep aren't the smartest animals out there. They're frightful, really helpless creatures. They don't have fangs or sharp claws to protect themselves. Relatively speaking, they're not very fast to run away from an adversary. No, without intentional care, direction, and protection, they flounder. They don't flourish, and they probably die. Now, Philip Keller, author to the nice little book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, says this of sheep, and uh, this sheep and human comparison. It says, he says, it's no accident that God's chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Our mob instinct, our fears and timidity, our stubbornness and stupidity, our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. Now, aside from our similarity to sheep, it's important to understand that shepherding was incredibly challenging work. When it stormed or changed seasons, there was shelter to think of, food, water, bedding, pestilence, sheep stealers. A shepherd was constantly considering the safety and the well-being of his sheep. They had to think ahead and plan well and constantly be on the lookout. My grandpa raised various kinds of livestock over the years. There was barn maintenance, pasture and field cultivation, crop raising, dependence upon weather cycles and seasons, crop harvest, water issues with frozen pipes in the winter. Disease was constantly a threat. We read about it in world headlines sometimes. Now, this meant many times dawn to dusk work, sweat, blood, sometimes maybe even tears at the disappointment of a bad harvest 
or that time when wild animals got in and killed some of the animals. The sheep were the shepherd's livelihood. Losing animals might mean his family was not going to eat. Sometimes I think the paintings we picture that a shepherd's task was a nice little walk with the sheep into the sunset over a gentle hill somewhere. Sometimes I don't think that that's as accurate as it could be. It's not the best picture to describe the way that our shepherd has had to care for us. Now, we enjoy nice pasture because of what the shepherd has done for for us. But here, when the shepherd leaves the 99, it's probably to come down into a valley that's dark, dangerous for sheep. Maybe it's on an exposed cliff where peril and danger are high for the sheep. In the briars and the thorn bushes, where wild beasts and dark forces wait to devour and destroy his sheep. Some would say this shepherd's love is reckless for leaving the 99 alone to come and get the one. Don't risk, just leave them. We'll take the 99. Philip Keller continues about sheep. Yet despite these adverse characteristics and conditions, Christ chooses us. He buys us, calls us by name, makes us his own, and delights in caring for us. Do you doubt the shepherd's love for you this morning? Do you feel as though you aren't worth his time or his attention? Do you ever wonder about the surety of the shepherd's care and attention to your need? Well, when you're tempted to despair, let me give you a scripture or two to recite to yourself, to preach to your soul. Think of Acts 28 that says the flock of God was purchased with his own blood. That's the level of the shepherd's resolve when one of his sheep is losing their way. His resolve for a sheep was his own blood. Or think of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 that tells us that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And that price was a shepherd's body, crushed, poured out on Calvary. Jesus condescended. He came down from on high and he put on flesh and blood in order to rescue lost sheep. There isn't a higher cost, no higher price that could be paid. And there's no depth that he cannot go to in the valley of despair or despondency or desolation to rescue his stray sheep. Just a little bit more lighthearted for a second here. There's a song, a country song, about a rancher. Maybe it's a sheep rancher. It says this. It says, I've got a scar on my third knuckle from stretching barbed wire fence. Rawhide ropes and bronx I broke have left them bent and bruised. 
But if you really want to know a man, his hands always tell the truth. Well, if you doubt his goodness, your shepherd's hands tell the truth. They've been pierced for our transgression. And he's come to get you. He's come to rescue you at the cost of his own life. Yes, some might call that reckless, but he's called it love. And this is the word of our testimony. So when sin is crouching at your door, waiting to devour you, and the accuser of the brethren says that no help is coming, consider his hands, because they're telling the truth. Wow. What a love. Let's dig in deeper to this. And what does this look like when this beautiful truth is applied in our lives? First, submit to this love of the shepherd by placing your faith in Christ for salvation. Turn away from lesser gods. There are no gods at all. Allow the good shepherd to lead you beside still waters and bring you to green pastures that you shall not want. Have faith in the good shepherd. For those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, we're called to emulate the shepherd in our love for others. When we see that Jesus came into this groaning and sin-laden world to reach wayward sheep, we too should be motivated to bring tidings of good news and great joy to our neighbors. Charles Spurgeon appealed to his congregation. He said, I beg you to notice that the Lord Jesus shows peculiar interest in one lost soul. For those of us who are used to living in God's flock and enjoying the delight that it brings, isn't it easy sometimes, as our commentator uh, Craig Blomberg says, we can think that the faithfulness of the, of the majority is an excuse to us for ignoring those who remain distant from God. I'm going to read that again. We can use the faithfulness of the majority to excuse us for ignoring those who remain distant from God. Uh, much has been written about the de-churching of Americans, but there's a hunger that's hardwired into image bearers for union with their maker. All hearts are hungry, so let us be like a waiter or waitress who brings the meal that the chef has prepared. Now, we cannot make them eat what the Lord has prepared. and Some people rebel against their maker. But we can prepare ourselves to present the meal well. And their maker is jealous for them. He desires all to trust in him for salvation. Many people today are open spiritually. So let us sow the seed of God's word and the gospel into their lives. Get to know these people. Love them practically in hospitality and kindness. Offering prayer when they have a need. That just saying, I'd love to pray for you about whatever it is, that might open a door 
for you to minister the gospel into their life. It really creates the space where we can serve the meal that Christ has prepared for them. Now, our commentator Blomberg, one of the great commentators on Matthew, says this. He says, the practical application of this text requires a strong emphasis on pastoral care in our churches. Workable implementation demands carefully structured and monitored networks of under-shepherds, home groups, and ministries of visitation. Now, if Jesus will leave the 99 for the one, then we are called to, when we see a brother or sister in Christ caught in a thorn bush or dangerously close to a precipice, we're called to reach out. Now, I'm speaking about, in this, I'm speaking primarily about when a brother or sister is discouraged, struggling with life in general or difficult circumstance. Maybe it's ongoing health problems cause us to doubt the hands of the shepherd, tragedy or loss that tempt us to doubt. Now, this isn't rocket science. We don't need to overthink this. When you live life in community together, it's not that hard with some attentiveness to tell when people are struggling, when something is off. And may we love one another well when we identify these brothers and sisters, offering our spiritual gifts to one another, to bless, to encourage the spiritually discouraged and distraught. We need reminders of God's grace and his love to us. We need to hear from others. I need this often to be reminded of the shepherd's love for us. And I could share countless examples of how you all pursue herding sheep here at Orchard. It's one of the most encouraging things to my own soul about our life together at Orchard. Keep loving one another in this way. Now, moving forward in verses 15 through 17, in his wisdom, Christ has given instructions for restorative love and how to approach one living within the flock who's also living with sin. Recall our Exodus reference from earlier. God is a jealous God, and he doesn't share us with sinful idols. To use Jesus' language, there's no way to serve two masters. We cannot be a slave to sin and to God. So when a member of the flock sins, they're living in a way that's inconsistent with the profession of faith that they've made in Christ. And Jesus gives us a way to proceed when this comes up in life in the flock. Matthew 15 continues, excuse me, Matthew continues here in verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now this is the classic text that addresses what's often referred to as church discipline. My positive spin is called uh, is calling it restorative love. That really is Jesus's desire here for this to be a restorative process for those who might be straying. But it doesn't always go to this happy ending. 
where the sinning one repents. A better way, maybe a nuance to add to this, is to think about the goal of this process to be faithfulness. Both faithfulness of the sinning one to help restore them to faithful living, and when that doesn't happen, the flock's goal is faithfulness to the Lord's instructions here. That's the most loving thing we can do at that point. Now, approaching this process with faithfulness and obedience to Jesus in mind will help light our path and give us needed discernment. This path can get foggy and murky. Sin doesn't make things better or more clear. It destroys things and makes the journey harder. So the goal is restoration, and when that isn't possible because of unrepentance, we maintain faithfulness to the Lord's instruction. So what's the process? Now, I think the process, the steps outlined here are clear, but they're anything but easy. The process is fraught with emotion and relational turmoil often, but Jesus has given us these steps to help us discern what needs to happen. And before moving on, we have to address step zero. Before we take any steps, there's some things we've got to get oriented around about the spirit and intent of the process. What's our posture to be before we take any steps? What's our mindset? Now, our posture towards someone living within the flock who has sinned should be influenced by the fact that we, too, needed forgiveness. When we realize that we were all the one sheep that was stray and he came to rescue us, it calibrates our approach. It humbles us. If we see ourselves as more deserving of grace than another sinner, that's wrong. It's an error. We were all the one, and we all needed rescue. Now, if we walk into a meeting with our brother or sister in Christ and we're personally offended, we need to take our offense to God first. If things are raw and we're angry and we're bitter, we need to deal with the plank in our own eye first. And we may be, you may be thinking, well, I was the one that was wronged and hurt and wounded. We need to go to Jesus with that first. When we've dealt with our own bitterness and anger and hurt, we'll be more able to approach in the spirit of love, not defensiveness or hurt. Our posture is marked by the love of the Savior that we just talked about and what he's gone through for us. It smells like the fruit of his spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's marked by his desire to call his sheep into his fold and also to protect his flock from the destructive effects of unrestrained sin. This is what kingdom life looks like for his flock. And he's inviting us in this, in these verses, he's inviting us into this kingdom life and the way that he loves and pursues lost sheep. 
He's helping us to be discerning and to protect the flock. Another helpful discerning point is given to us by Ken Sandy in his seminal work titled The Peacemaker. We're to overlook minor offenses. Jesus doesn't give us these verses so that we make mountains out of molehills and treat small things like they're huge and everything requires a big confrontation. No, we can live together with grace and understanding. Check out these verses. Proverbs 19.11, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 17.14, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Our posture is to be as one who is ready to forgive should the offending person repent. Now, you've maybe heard the phrase, death by a thousand paper cuts. That sounds terrible. (laughs) We all just got a picture of somebody in our head, too. Sometimes when small things don't go, don't get addressed, turns into big stuff. Consider 1 John 3.19. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So when there's a practice of sinning, in there, or maybe there's a one-time event that causes significant damage and harm, We need to move to step one. Think of this as unrestrained or unconfessed, unrepentant, unhindered sin. Or a single sin that causes enough damage that healing and restoration need to be approached in a more formal manner. Usually behind these significant one-time things, usually not always, there's a pattern of unrestrained sin somewhere. Maybe we just weren't aware of it. Verse 15 says, Go and tell him his fault between you and him, and if he listens, you've gained your brother. This is private and personal. Our motivation is the love of our shepherd that we're trying to emulate. Our posture is not accusatory. It's inquisitive. If we suspect sin but we aren't sure, we don't accuse. We can ask questions or share concerns. But if that's where we're at, we might not be at step one yet. Now, if there's no question that a brother or sister has been walking in sin, we need to address it head on. And this step, quite frankly, is probably where most disciplined things reside. We approach one another in love. We seek to win back the straying member of our spiritual family. When our family member sees our concern and love, sees a loving but direct approach, the Holy Spirit uses it. It's part of how God works to to bring that sheep back. Now, this might feel awkward for a lot of people. If it doesn't at all, you might be too eager for confrontation. But this is what God has prescribed for the good of the straying sheep and for the flock as a whole. 
Now, if the personal, this personal and private approach is tried and the brother or sister digs in and they defend their sinful behavior, we're at step two. Verse 16. Jesus says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This brings more discernment to the process. If the initial, initial approach wasn't received well, maybe it was because of how the first brother or sister approached them. Maybe it was a simple miscommunication. Maybe it's straightforward unrepentance. So Jesus says to take two or three along that the charge that remains after seeking clarification in this meeting would be established by multiple witnesses, not just one. This practice had been established in the nation of Israel. This wouldn't have been shocking to the original hearers. It's probably a little lost on us. The same values guide here. This should be mature, humble, kind, loving brothers and sisters who are seeking to restore, not to be punitive. Now, I'm totally aware that in reality, this is terribly uncomfortable. Wait, I tried to address this and it failed? And Jesus wants me to take two or three others and just do the same thing again? Now, if you've ever walked through this at any level, you understand the time and the energy and the prayer that this takes. Coordinating four schedules to get together? The nerves and the relational discord that's often present in these? It'd be way easier to just forget it all not address sin, and to just look the other way. Let's just move on. Undoubtedly, if the first meeting doesn't go well, no one is excited about the second. So I remind us all of the goal, faithfulness to Christ, restoration of a brother or sister. Our Lord has given us these instructions in love. So we, in love, obedience, faithfulness, and much prayer proceed. If we get to step two and this fails, we move to an even more difficult step, which is number three. Verse 17 begins, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. When the one who's living with the flock who is sinning won't turn away from their sin, even after the small group has approached them, has clarified and re-approached this person, it's time to appeal to a broader audience. The referral to the broader audience is so that they can also appeal to this brother or sister living in unrepentant sin. The appeal is to help the sinning one see the foolishness of sin, the slavery of it. Now, we were made to live in union with our Father, and we can only do that through repentance from sin and faith in Christ. That is the pleading that we're doing with the one that we love, with Christ's love. We must labor to ensure that this doesn't come across like gossip, like we're ganging up on somebody. On the contrary, at this point, the body of Christ is fighting for the person pursuing with a love and a passion that befits our Savior's love. 
Now, this stage is fraught not just with relational challenges. Today, legal challenges. A person doesn't like how you approach them, they can go to the court of law. So we have to have shrewdness in how we handle this and careful thought and prayer and discernment. Now, the larger size of most local assemblies nowadays leads me to believe that it's not necessarily mandatory to announce this step in front of the whole body. I think there's wisdom, perhaps, in telling the home group, that closer group of people that know the sinning person really well. Some other scriptures in the New Testament help us with discernment on this. It's clear to me that when the sinning member is a leader, known to all in the spiritual family, the rebuke is to be public before everyone. First Timothy 5.20, Paul writes this, speaking of elders, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. This rebuke is for the good of the flock, that they fear the effects of sin, the deceptiveness of it in the leader's life, but also their own. Sin leads to death. It leads to separation from community, and that's meant for our nourishment and our health. Another scenario when public rebuke before all is warranted, when the sin that has happened is very public in front of the whole flock, and, and then it's really to protect the flock from thinking, well, that might be okay. We learn this from 1 Corinthians 5, where the assembly had embraced, embraced one living with his father's wife. The judgment needed to be made publicly to instruct the whole group. And this brings us to step four and the next step in verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If the church's appeals are unsuccessful in winning the brother to repentance from sin, it's time that the nature of the relationship with that person changes. When repentance isn't present, and the choice is made to continue chasing after whatever the sin, sinful idol is in their life, it becomes clear that the one sinning is not a sheep. And all of this is done in love. Our Lord has given us this in his love for the unrepentant sinner and for the flock. And one commentator even put it this way, at this last stage where this relationship changes, it says, this is still possibly a re rehabilitative step and not retributive. This leaves nowhere for the recalcitrant sinner to hide in the flock. If, if someone that's not a sheep is running around in the flock thinking they're a sheep and thinking they're going to escape the wrath of a holy God, it's not loving to let them to continue to think that. God's word is clear for us here. Ongoing unrepentant sin is not consistent with a Holy Spirit indwelt person. One cannot serve two masters. God is jealous for us and doesn't allow us to split our time with another lover. At this phase, the nature of our relationship with the person is focused on purposeful interaction, encouraging repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Really, it turns to an evangelistic relationship. 
it's not fellowship as with a brother or a sister in Christ at this point. This one should not be welcome to participate, receive the elements in the Lord's Supper. Now, in affirming and agreeing with the observation made of unrepentance from sin, the flock is agreeing with what has already been observed in heaven, that this one is not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The shepherd is with his sheep in this observation and declaration. Verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is with his sheep when they join together in obedience and worship of him. And Jesus is with his sheep when they have to navigate painstaking and difficult situations when one's living with the flock as one of their own departs in rebellion. The observation and declaration made is important for the sake of the flock, for the sake of the sinner. Now, much more could be said of this process and scripture in other places gives us all kinds of helpful guidance for how to navigate this process. What's the time frame? How long do you give? These are all questions that are hard to wrestle with. There's myriads of possible situations where this could get put into practice. But the steps here are clear, and applying them in any given situation is difficult and painful often when it ends with disfellowshipping somebody. But these are the steps for what faithful, restorative love looks like. May the Lord give us courage and humility to walk obedient with him. And may the Lord grant repentance and faith to anyone that we may walk with through these steps. So one of the lyrics that I read at the beginning, it started this way again. It says, he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. If you feel the hurricane around you this morning, and you feel like buckling beneath the weight of his wind and mercy, buckle away. Place your faith in Jesus this morning. Or maybe you just need to reaffirm your faith in Christ and turn from your sin. Sin's desire for you is death. Christ's desire for you is life. The song continues, when all of a sudden, I am unaware of these afflictions because they've been eclipsed by glory and realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Your shepherd is with you. He longs for you. And you can trust that his desire is for you. Just consider his hands. They bear the marks that bore the wrath that you deserved. Please stand with me, and I'm going to close in prayer. Oh, Father, you're so, so good to us, providing a rescuer, providing a shepherd, a good shepherd who loves us, who spared no cost, 
to bring us back to himself. Oh, my hope this morning, Lord, is that every soul here would worship you because of this. Let this truth, let these verses that you shed your blood and you poured out your life for us, let it send us out of here with joy, with courage to face whatever waits us this week. We pray that you would be glorified through our lives as we embrace this great truth. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.